This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Our featured speaker, Scott Appleby, whose bio you have in your programs, has been a mentor of mine and a friend of the school since its inception. As a director of the Kroc Institute for International Studies at Notre Dame, with an academic program older and so much larger than ours, he has always made time to help shape our master's program to produce graduates who have not only scholars, but also peace practitioners through internships based on the Notre Dame model. Now, please join me in welcoming Scott Appleby. Good evening. Thank you for being here tonight. I'm delighted to be here, not only because I gained 50 degrees of temperature by coming here from South Bend, but because uh, I get to see so many co-conspirators in the study of religion and colleagues and old friends here. Father Hesburgh, uh, 96 years young, sends his greetings. He's always delighted and, uh, by collaboration between the two Croc Institute schools um, because he remains uh, really touchingly so devoted to Mrs. Croc many years after she passed. And when I come back to this place, of course, I, my own thoughts return to her and what an extraordinary person she was. So we're all in her debt and, of course, in Father Hesburgh's debt. This evening, I hope to stimulate some conversation by calling for specialization in the study and practice of religious peacebuilding uh, because I think the field has grown sufficiently to warrant the next phase, which is specialization. It's typical of Father Headley, uh, his sense of timing and occasion, that he would convene this conference on religion, conflict, and peacebuilding on the 20th anniversary of this field of study. Historians will quibble about origins, but a strong case can be made that the first significant milestone marking its emergence was the publication 20 years ago in 1994 of that book he referred to, Religion, the Missing Dimension of Statecraft, an achievement that owed its impact to the missionary zeal of the indefatigable Doug Johnston. The volume was a lament that a, a counterproductive strain of what we call now secular myopia, a kind of secular blindness to the importance of religion, had excluded expertise in religion from foreign policy deliberations and circles. And the book was also a clarion call, so to speak, uh, to analytical arms by senior foreign policy advisors such as Edward Lutvok, Barry Rubin, and Stanton Burnett, people who had recently gotten religion back 20 years ago. That is, they had awakened to the fact that mistakes have been made, avoidable blunders committed by analysts and policymakers who for so many years in this country had imposed on the rest of the world a specious inside-the-beltway model of secularization according to which religion had long ago spent its political and ideological force in the world. But it turned out that no, the Iranian Revolution was not, quote, a socio-economic protest movement sugar-coated in religious pieties, 
as a former U.S. ambassador to Egypt, was still describing it as late as 1985. People had problems acknowledging that religion is a force unto itself with its own dynamics, its own patterns. And I remember being on a local news show in Chicago at the time that the Ayatollah Khomeini issued a fatwa against Salman Rushdie. And I was with a political scientist, and uh, the, comment, the mediator said, why did he do this? And the political scientist said he did it to shore up his own political clout in the Islamic world and within his hardline circle, and he went on about that for a while. And that seemed to be the, uh, the orthodox position to take at the time. And I said, well, I'm sure that's true, but he also did it because he doesn't recognize modern borders of nation states or national sovereignty. He thinks he's the, overseeing the Ummah. And this, uh, this apostate Muslim, in his view, has uh, blasphemed the prophet, and it's perfectly within his religious right and duty as a matter of conviction to call him to account in the most violent way. And people looked at me like I was out of the Middle Ages. I said, no, Khomeini is out of the Middle Ages, but, <laughs> but you have to account for the fact that Religion has its own dynamics and force in the world. With the missing dimension volume, Johnston and his co-editor Cynthia Sampson not only hoped to consolidate a field of study called religion and peacebuilding, they also established one of its first subfields or areas of specialization even 20 years ago. Let's call it religion, diplomacy, and state security. That's one subfield of the larger study of religion and peace, religion and conflict, which attempts to integrate insights from the study of religion into the areas, arenas of national security, diplomacy, foreign affairs. It qualifies as a, dis as a discrete specialization by virtue of the flood of activity and kind of institutionalization that follow the publication of Missing, of missing Dimension and accelerated wildly after 9-11. This flurry of activity around religion and statecraft included a series of scholarly books, treatises, reports, and even memoirs, the creation and regular convening of a cadre of religion scholars who became ad hoc expert consultants on religion to the U.S. State and Defense Departments, the FBI, the CIA, and USAID, to the United Nations, to NATO, and to the European Union. It also included the commissioning and issuing of a series of reports from civil society and government task forces and commissions, and the establishment of the Office of International Religious Freedom in the State Department, the appointment of a U.S. ambassador at large for religious freedom, and most recently, the opening of the Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives at the State Department. The publications included Johnson's own series of successors to the Missing Dimension book, books like Faith-Based Diplomacy, Trumping Realpolitik, and Religion, Terror, and Error, U.S. Foreign Policy and the Challenge of Spiritual Engagement. It included a spate of works on religion and terrorism, the most authoritative coming from security specialist Bruce Hoffman and political scientist Michael Barkin, it included Secretary of, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright's Mea Culpa, We Got Religion Wrong, entitled The Mighty and the Almighty, Reflections on America, God, and World Affairs. And most prominently, it included Engaging Religious Communities Abroad, a new imperative for U.S. foreign policy, which Rich Sizek and I uh, were very much in the middle of helping to create with the Chicago Council of Global Affairs. It included many other things, but the point is that 
the, the field really exploded, metaphorically, after other explosions in the world 20 years ago, and established itself. The fact that this was one of the first very prominent and publicly visible expressions of religion and, religion and conflict, religion and peace building, has its advantages and disadvantages that we can talk about later. But there it was. Um, I remember being one of that cadre of religious experts called upon to um, go to Washington. We were called upon initially in the first 10 years or so as kind of tokens. Well, we have to consult the religion people. You know, it's, it seems apparent now that this Al-Qaeda group may have some religious motivation, and therefore we need to, and, and of course, you know if you work with the government that there are forms to fill out, and sometimes the people who are filling them out and following these rubrics are not passionately interested in the topic. And so I, I remember two particular occasions in which we were brought in this, I won't say which part of the government it was, it was the Department of Defense, uh, when they brought us in, there were about 10 of us, and they were really pleased with their new um, computer system, computer terminals, and the way they could get the information they needed, at a, which was always kind of a superficial process on religion and religions and foreign policy and terrorism and extremism. And what they did to us that day is they put us on a table. There were about, I'd say about eight to ten of us, who had written in this area. So David Rappaport was there, who's written on religion and terrorism broadly, and Mark Juergensmeyer and myself. And and we were time. We were sitting at computer terminals. I, we, we almost had electrodes in our. And there was a big screen, and they were putting up on the screen um, sentences, um, precepts. And we were, in a, so example, what are the conditions under which another Om Shinrikyo gas attack will occur by a religious group like this? And then there were like eight or nine sentences. And you were supposed to choose the one that you thought was the, the one. And you had only so many minutes to do this, seconds. And we, we quickly noticed that these lines were taken from our books. So, <laughs> so you kind of had a basic self-interest in choosing the line of your own. I believe that one's right. These other seven are wrong. Many of these initiatives were government-sponsored, and some of them still are. And they have their own dynamics. They're, they're different than the dynamics of projects that are initiated by scholars pursuing their own research interests. But any of us who are recipients of grants know that there's no such thing as a pure research project that's untainted by or uninfluenced by, it's not always tainted, by the interests of donors, whoever they may be. Still, there's a difference between those who are commissioned for by a government or by uh, a unit with a clear ideological national political interest and has certain objectives that may overlap with yours, but they, they don't always fit into a category we would call peace building. Although the people who are promoting some of these kinds of studies who want to learn how do we undermine the al-Qaeda's of the world, and mostly they're talking about Islamist extremism. Not always, but mostly that's what the concern of the government is, understandably. And what they want to understand is the weak spots and it's a defensive um, approach. And, you know, as Americans and as scholars who are desperate to feel that they're relevant about anything, you jump to the task of trying to inform and educate, and it's, it's a good thing. And in fact, in my experience, uh, the most sophisticated of the government units I have worked with is actually the CIA's uh, Islam uh, Bureau. 
the people they had hired at the time I was working with them were quite nuanced and sophisticated and really were trying to understand the dynamics of Islamic populations. So it was often um, uh, good to work with them and you learned a lot. My point though is that that's a different kind of engagement and activity than what also sprung up in part through the funding of some of these early projects. So there were funding, for example, by the Luce Foundation for the last decade that grew out of the aftermath of 9-11 and the recognition at that time that the US public and many policymakers don't have a basic grasp of Islam, for example, or of religion more generally, or of the dimensions of religion that are so important for uh, international global affairs for the way people understand their lives around the world. We tend to impose on, on others what we're comfortable with or familiar with with our own personal religious life or lack thereof or with public-private distinctions and our own understanding of secularization when in fact people began to realize after 9-11 that it's much more complicated and that anthropologists and historians, economists, political scientists, and most important, experts on religion really needed to inform um, the larger public discourse. So the Luce Foundation uh, embarked upon a study that born out of that, that in a way was continuous with the earlier uh, government-sponsored and institutional uh, studies of religion and extremism. And Luce uh, created a program that has gone on in religion and international affairs for over a decade, but it, it wasn't about security, it wasn't about fighting terrorism, it was simply about educating uh, the broader public on religious dynamics. And of course, it's going to engage questions of Islam and other religious faiths. But one of the great benefits of that was that the Luce program ended up funding a number of projects. I think Linnell has certainly been funded by Luce to study secularism, secularization, religion in the public sphere, democratization. These are topics that are not um, directly applicable to and often critical of the way a nation state will use religion or manipulate religion. So they lead the study of religion and conflict and peace building in different directions that are very rich. So the specialization in terms of talking about funding and sponsorship, which academics are always in the game of if they're doing important complex research, that's an interesting story over many years that has led to, willy-nilly, a variety of, of kinds of support for new areas of specialization not connected so much to the fight against terrorism. And the Luce Foundation has been very much part of that. So the pedigree is complicated. My topic tonight, though, is not really religion, diplomacy, and state security, or religion and international affairs. That's one subset. I'm looking at the broader question of specialization in this area. I want to offer and defend, in the time remaining to me, a three-part proposal. Number one, religion and peace building is now an established field of study in the academy and in the world of peace building practice. Religious and peace building is now an established field of study. Number two, given the complexity of this field, the way in which religion is a missing dimension of statecraft and peace building and economic development and culture that is missing in our full understanding of those areas, given the complexity and the demands now being made upon the field, an era of specialization is now called for, of a kind of 
um, intentional uh, era where we, we put our minds to it and say it's time for us to begin to uh, go deeper into certain aspects of this broad field and become expert in that dimension where we are in particular institutional location. And the third uh, proposition, which will be the topic tomorrow, is that the Kroc School of Peace Studies here in San Diego should provide a, a model of the kind of specialization that is necessary. The deliberations uh, tomorrow are about how the Kroc School can contribute to this, and I have a few things to say about ways that can be the case toward the end of my comments. So let's take these proposal, the parts of the proposal one by one. First, it seems evident to so many of us that we have a field of study now. It's not a discipline, it's not a big field, but it is a discrete field of study. The evidence consists in the following facts, among others, that this is now really a field, over, grown over 20 years. Even when the requirements for inclusion in a field bibliography are narrowly defined, excluding, for example, the innumerable religion and terrorism and religion apocalypse and religion and neoliberal, neo-capitalist world domination volumes are excluded, along with other such outliers, when you take those off the table, you can still compile a bibliography of well over 300 books and articles that focus now on the various dimension of religion and religions as it and they, religion and religions, shape and are shaped by deadly conflict and by efforts at violence prevention and mitigation, justice and human rights, reconciliation, trauma healing, transitional justice, and the other elements of what we call peace building, this kind of comprehensive approach to reducing violence and reconciling peoples who have been enemies. So there are at least 300 titles, you could probably collect more than that, that are really serious studies of some dimension of this field, and that's significant. Secondly, the field had its own academic journal, its own sections at academic conferences, such as the American Academy of Religion and the International Studies Association, and a forthcoming Oxford University Press handbook, a field handbook that is supposed to be kind of the cutting edge of this new field, 35 essays indicating the diversity of approaches to religion and peace building. The field has its senior founding mothers and fathers, a few of whom are in this room, uh, along with a larger and shifting company of experts who regularly appear now in the media and as consultants and think tankers. And if all this doesn't convince you, well, dissertations have been written about the field, so it must exist. And people writing these dissertations have actually received paying jobs to continue working in this field. It's even more important. And not least, the field has been su sufficiently conceptualized if not yet sufficiently theorized, the concepts in the field, and we could spend all tomorrow talking about what are the basic concepts in the field of religion and peace building. So this is a very quick down and dirty list. The concepts include a recognition that religions are internally plural. Seems obvious, but to really absorb the fact that religions are part, they're made of traditions and scriptures and individuals, often going back many generations, sometimes millennia, and that these are ongoing, living, vital, contested traditions that are constantly competing internally with one another. Islam, of course, is undergoing a, an often violent internal contestation about things like the meaning of jihad, 
and what it means to be in pursuit of justice in the current context in which Islam faces, uh, Muslims face uh, so many challenges. What does jihad mean? The fact that there is a contestation is not new in religion. It's unfortunate that it's often violent. That's not new either. But what does it mean to think about the fact that religions are internally plural and that they are fighting within themselves all the time and that this is intrinsic to religion itself because the sacred, the holy, God, whatever term you want to use for the transcendent is transcendent. And there's always going to be argument about what the proper interpretation and meaning of this holy reality is and should be. And that's something to keep in mind as we think about how religions interact with other people and sectors of society, how they produce often marvelous martyrs and peace builders and courageous um, champions of justice, as well as people who believe that they're also being champions of justice when they kill and when they engage in war. So the kind of full resonance of what it means to say religions are plural, they produce a constant contestation over meaning and practice. This opens out to the possibility for the retrieval by practitioners and religious leaders of scriptures, rituals, and precepts that are conducive to the cultivation of tolerance, reconciliation, forgiveness, hospitality, and other virtues of the peacemaker. Another concept that's pretty basic to the field is the complicated, historically evolving interplay between the religious and the secular, creating spaces of ambiguity and opportunity within the state, science, and other drivers of techno-scientific modernity. This is not quite as obvious because many of us grew up thinking there's the secular realm and there's the religious realm and there's the modern state and over there is the mosque or the church and of course it's nothing like that. In short, though new concepts and revisions of old concepts must continue apace, we do now kind of know what we're dealing with when we speak of religion within the realm of peace and war and rumors of war. We know that to a degree and depth we did not know in 1994, 20 years ago. So that's the first point. Second point is, given the complexity of the field and the demands being made upon it, an era of specialization is now called for. That was my second proposition. Already, there are many areas of specialization, many areas have emerged or are emerging, but it's now time for colleges, universities, think tanks, and other institutions that support scholar practitioners in this field to commit themselves to one or more of these subfields and develop them further, really name them as subfields or areas of specialization now that we've got a field. Let's deepen it. Let's help it mature. The field itself will, be, will mature as a result of people going deeper into particular areas and contributing back to the, the understanding of the larger question of religion and its role in conflict and peace building. So let me, just in terms of areas of specialization, I mentioned this Oxford handbook that I'm one of the editors of. It's coming out later this year, and it's one of these kind of thick, the, the, the assignment is, Give us the cutting edge of your field of study. What's really coming? What's the, what's the, the, the current state of it? And how is it emerging and evolving? And bring the best people together you can find uh, and make sure you have this kind of diversity and this kind of, you know, check all these boxes. So we've done that as best we could. Here are just some of the titles of these, uh, many of them younger scholars, not all of them certainly, who are working in this field and have taken a particular angle on it. 
religion, peace, and the origins of nationalism, religion, nationalism, and the politics of secularism, secular religious encounters as modes of peace building when the secular and the religious come together or bounce off one another, religion and development as partners in strategic peace building, religious freedom and proselytism, are these threats to coexistence and tolerance? Threats to coexistence and tolerance. Women, gender, and peace building. So um, my argument is not that all these subfields have sufficiently involved, but that they have the intellectual resources to evolve, and they should do so. Why? Because the nexus of religion and peace in the real world is enormously variegated, rich, and vital. And yet we have not informed the disciplines that are supposed to comprehend the world what we already know about religions still mostly overlooked roles in the world. What is more, in engage, when we engage with these disciplines and areas of study, like gender studies, when we engage in these uh, and the worlds they do reveal to us, we haven't really moved further along in revising and deepening our understanding of religion. You know, religion is a vast, complicated topic, and so there needs to be more congress between the disciplines and the study of religion for our understanding of religion and for their understanding of religion's role in the world. All of this is to lament that religion is still a missing dimension of gender studies, the psychology of war and peace, the sociology of knowledge, the economics of peace building and development, and of the liberal peace in general. There's still many missing dimensions out there that need addressing. Let me illustrate the promise of specialization by sketching a kind of emerging subfield that Catherine Marshall, who will be here much later tonight, you'll be with her tomorrow, those of you in the conference, really has pioneered. And I'm going to summarize, um, summarize my text here because I want to stay as close as I can to the time. But um, I've been working a little bit on this as well. This is the study of how do religion and religious actors, institutions, movements, and networks, how are they players in development, in economic development? You know, what does the World Bank have to do uh, when it uh, funds projects to build bridges and irrigate valleys and uh, improve health conditions in developing countries? If you look at the World Bank's history, of the World Bank, it's over 750 pages. The word religion appears once. This is an example of secular myopia. It appears once because the folks of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and major development organizations forever and ever and ever until about three years ago, it seems, just blinkered. Religion's complicated. You know, these Christians, some of them, and the Muslims, they're, they're, they're patriarchal, they're bad on gender, they're not good on birth control and so on, so they're just a pain. Um, they're regressive. We don't want to get involved with them and so forth. Well, that may all be true, but unfortunately for them, 40 to 60%, Catherine Marshall says, she might have different statistics now, of the health care delivered in sub-Saharan Africa is delivered by Christians or Muslims. So if you're in development and you don't acknowledge that and you don't find a way to learn from or engage religious actors in development, you're not doing your job. In the meantime, religions can be difficult to work with in these areas, we have to admit. How do religious communities and leaders lower their barriers of mistrust and hostility toward outsiders and partner in ways in which we can move forward 
for economic development that is not merely economic or material, but also pays attention to culture, to the values of the people who are supposedly being developed. This is what integral human development means. It means it's the development of the spirit, of the culture, of the whole person, of the community as a community, not just of the bridge and the healthcare delivery. That's complicated, and one can understand why the secular development agencies have stayed away from it. It's difficult enough to deliver the grain to this starving population. So there are not any easy answers to this. But what's interesting is the field of peace building has emerged in parallel lines with development, but they don't talk very much. So peace building in the elicitive method that Lederach and others, that both croc institutions, um, I think, adhere to in a way, it's, it's from the ground up. It focuses on the local community. It's culturally elicitive, peace building. If you want to help solve a local conflict that's been going on forever, you better know the languages. You better understand the cultural cues. Peace is not going to come from the State Department of any particular nation state or from the United Nations unless or until it's owned by the people. This is also true of development projects. How do religion, religious actors um, fit into that? Well, we need to study more about it, and there's a lot. I'll send you the, the essay in the Oxford book, or you can read anything that Catherine Marshall and many of her colleagues have written. But again, we have a field that's emerging because there are. I was able to write myself a 40-page essay that um, didn't repeat itself based on about 50, 50 previous publications, a little bit of my own experience, but mostly upon what scholars and practitioners have already written about this nexus between religious actors, faith, development, and peace building, and how they really should come together because they're, they're addressing some of the same kinds of challenges and problems. So that's a field crying for further conceptualization, theorization, and for helping to interact with practitioners and to begin to loosen up some of our own government's reluctance to work with religious actors, and that's the, the project that, that Rich and I were part of. How do we engage religious communities in a respectful way that draws upon their energy, vitality, and cultural power, in the best sense of the term, and do that in a way that is constructive and, and, uh, and creative? So there's much to say about what religious actors can bring and do bring to development. And Catherine Marshall, as I mentioned, who will be with you tomorrow, is one of the major contributors. My third and final proposition, so I can give some time to the other speakers, I'll, I'll say something about briefly. And that third proposition was, or element of the proposition was, that the Croc School here in San Diego should provide a model of the kind of specialization that is necessary. And by that I mean that as Notre Dame or... Uh, Arizona State University or George uh, Mason or um, whatever it might be, Wh whatever these universities are, and there are many of them engaged in having some kind of program in religion and peace building now, religion in conflict, religion, human rights. Those dozen or more institutions, and there are more than that, how do they begin to specialize, moving beyond this first stage of studying religion conflict and peace. And what they, one of the strategies to do, to do that, and this is something that you should be and will be talking about tomorrow, is you begin to ask yourself first, who are we? What are our strengths in my particular institution? 
what we already have in terms of expertise. Another question is where are we located? You know, what is our physical space? And what region are we in? Um, how do we begin to understand and apply and experiment with and learn from these concepts and theories about religion and peace by understanding our own religious setting, our own cultural setting? So for example, what I'm gonna suggest now for the Croc School is no great work of insight because if you know this place, you know that some of the possibilities for specialization would be um, giving attention to location, and that might mean this would be a great place to study religion and peace building around issues of border disputes and, and migration and immigration across borders and migrant workers and how we think about uh, because so many of the conflicts in the world today are, are, you're right near a border here, right? Are about borders and the traffic among nations. Well, you're in a perfect laboratory for that here, and you already have a transborder institute. How do you integrate the study of religion and peace building within that study of borders? Your new director asked me to plug that. Um, you're on the Pacific Rim. Uh, which, which way do you look beyond borders? Um, is, there, is this a place to take advantage of that kind of geopolitical location? Um, you're in an area of heavy military presence, the Navy and other aspects of the military. It's not obvious. Uh, Notre Dame has one of the largest um, uh, ROTC, if not, I think, the largest ROTC program in the country. And our Croc Institute has been in dialogue with that ROTC program since we began. And some of the ROTC, the military, people training for the military and leaders in the military are some of the most productive and important contributors to our understanding of peace and some of the greatest advocates for nonviolence and peace and for restraint um, of military force. You're right here in the cradle of a major military installation and that could become an area of specialization. Um, there are others, uh, clearly, your existing strength, or one of the existing strengths here, is the remarkable program on women and peace building. And of course, that's an area that uh, is an area of specialization that's already got some momentum, and you would be drawing on strength here by drawing upon uh, the Institute's focus for many years uh, globally on the role of women in conflict and peace. That's an important area of emerging specialization. Uh, I fear I've said too much. You have a full day tomorrow to talk about these things, and I shouldn't get into the weeds anymore. When you do, think about why it is necessary to specialize, what it means to specialize, and what it will take to specialize. Did I say at the beginning anything about Father Ted? Let me just say Father Ted is 96 years young. I mentioned he would be happy that we're all here together. And he's particularly interested in the way, as you can imagine, that religion can be a force for peace building and human rights. That was part of his vision. So to the extent that Father Ted and Joan Crock are kind of our dual founding and patron saints uh, at these institutes, we're delighted that we have this conference and I appreciate very much your inviting me to be part of it. Uh, Scott has such an encyclopedic knowledge of the whole field he's been talking about. Um, he's just laid out a challenge, really, to all those who are 
academics and students and some people who might be going into the policy field to um, start defining and refining their approaches towards understanding how to integrate knowledge and care and sensitivity to religion as a, a critical factor in the way human beings behave, um, our, our fight, how uh, competition between their religions and doctrines and dogmas and their prophets uh, have led to many or justified or rationalized competition uh, and wars and violence. Uh, I have a particular, I have a set of biases, as all human beings do. Um, my particular interest is not so much in the orderly uh, understanding of, of how religion fits into whole, all of these factors that Scott so very brilliantly outlined, but how, um, <clears throat> uh, how we can save lives. I, I have a very kind of simple approach to life. I, I joined the Foreign Service in 1965, and I thought it was exciting. Uh, the, the Suez War really got me excited in 1956. And at the time, I was uh, a sophomore at Lehigh University and a putative chemistry major and I knew I was going to be destroyed as a chemistry major. I couldn't keep my head down to focus on facts and numbers because war was breaking out and it was too, so exciting. So I switched to international relations. <clears throat> but the, as I went into the, the field um, and my assignment, I studied uh, Arabic. I went to uh, graduate school in Middle Eastern studies and um, I was assigned, and then I joined the Foreign Service. It was tough to get in, uh, but it was the only thing I wanted to do. And uh, I became a Middle East specialist by um, academically and then assigned through, through language training, Arabic. I was assigned to Baghdad in my first assignment, then uh, a year and a half, transferred to Basra, and that ended with a bang with the Six-Day War in 1967, June 5th, an attack on our consulate. Uh, it was a small mom-and-pop operation, three American families. Um, when the mob came on the morning of the 5th of June, um, all, of, all of the American families, uh, children, were gathered inside the office building, the chancery, except for my wife, who didn't make it from our apartment. And she was there in her ninth month, ninth, uh, month of pregnancy, and our, our uh, house helper had sort of put her into a closet and uh, put himself into a closet and somehow the mob didn't enter our apartment or they didn't enter the other two. And all of a sudden the, the sense of uh, the adventure uh, and excitement that I went into the foreign services seemed to be less exciting. Certainly there's lots of adventure, but what I, what I was in and all of my colleagues was on the 5th of June, 1967, uh, our diplomatic and consular posts all over the Middle East and North Africa were under attack. In other words, we were paying, uh, playing the role as the symbolic representatives in the frontier of the great game of nations that Western European uh, countries, former colonial countries, um, but we as also participants very actively in the Cold War 
and competing with the Soviet Union for influence in the Middle East, uh, especially, uh, we became symbols. And religion was a powerful factor, but as Scott has pointed out, there was tremendous uh, resistance, understanding it or caring about it. I happen to be, have the honor of being in the steering group that produced religion, the missing dimension of statecraft with uh, Doug Johnson. And uh, I, I, I needed no persuasion that this was a tremendously important subject to start. And I'm really delighted that Scott sees that book as in 1994 as, a, as the start of a new uh, set of uh, in, uh, Wisdom, or at least uh, search for, for search for guidance to demystify phenomena that we couldn't figure out, but uh, that caused uh, up upheavals, wars, revolutions, and explosions in our face. And um, <clears throat> so, um, uh, what Doug was very, very clear. What we, what we were dealing with is a tremendous intellectual. Post, uh, intellectual conceit in the post-enlightenment, religion was withering away. I mean, we were uh, being uh, capitalist Marxists uh, in the sense that we refused to recognize that religion is a part of identity. Not only is it, so uh, when you have identity conflicts, when say the uh, Croatian Catholics uh, beat up Orthodox Serbs or vice versa, uh, religion becomes a part of your memory, depending on, uh, on the, you're on the winning side or the losing side. If you're on the losing side, you develop a victimhood psychology, and therefore your religious identity is, is much more than a set of of dogmas and doctrines and what the priests teach you on Sundays, but a part of your memory of having been brutalized and hurt and de de denied justice and denied faith in the whole concept of justice. Um, so it became clear that this, this uh, uh, intellectual conceit, and as uh, Scott pointed out, is still so many areas of, of academic study that refuse to uh, recognize the role of religion. We, it's just not cool. Um, thank God John Kerry recently said that uh, knowing what he's learned now, that uh, if, if he were in college again, he would, he would major in comparative religion. Madeleine Albright wrote the book, as Scott said, uh, The Mighty and the Almighty. You know, after a while, uh, you get hit over the head by a two by four, find, uh, you, you begin to ask, you know, what, why the hell is this happening to us? Um, the thing about religion is that not only is it a part of identity, and if, if, if one side is on a losing side in competition with the other, look at Northern Ireland, you know, the Catholics and the Protestants, look at the Sunni and Shia uh, conflicts going back uh, centuries. Uh, all of these create memory of injustice when you're on the losing side. And that's why it's just empirically a profound uh, element in your political analysis and your potential diagnosis and prescription for action. I happen to believe very strongly that uh, healing history is the critical element in peace building. And it's a profoundly psychological process. I'm a political psychologist by avocation, depth psychology. Human beings crave recognition, acceptance, and respect. Human beings, individuals, tribes, and nations. And history is just a story of one side denying that recognition, acceptance, respect to the other side. 
We have it in our own, in our own country. Uh, and we, our country is paralyzed in its governance. Uh, it, the paralysis didn't start with the election of our first black president, but the, uh, the election of our first black president and the re-election has, uh, in our own country, uh, revived memories of loss in the Civil War that about 30% of the population is literally crazy, insane, about having a black president in the White House, a black mother and wife and two black girls. Because our history is one of struggling, first of all, with the phenomenon of slavery, justifying it, um, having you know, evangelical biblical literalists say God meant uh, the races to be separate. God uh, blessed slavery. And then we had a vicious, tre tremendously traumatic tr civil war and freed the slaves, but uh, conducted a, re a reconstruction that humiliated the white losers in the South. Um, but, but then after a few years, we said, well, never mind, reconstruction's over, occupation's over, we've got to go someplace else. And then the punishment of the freed slaves, of the blacks in the Jim Crow era, the lynching went, went on. And those phenomena really reflected the fact that we really didn't heal our relationship in the, in the north-south white-white relationship. Uh, the fact that six, over 600,000 people were slaughtered in that war, but the North, being the winners, didn't care. Um, you're supposed to lose. Losers lose. That's, you, know, you have to live with it. You can't just live with losing. We need to heal. We need to show people that they're, they're precious, they're, they're valuable human beings. We have a paralysis in our governance now. Uh, there are other reasons. Uh, a, lot, a lot has to do with focused billionaire capitalism and uh, refusal to accept the, the basic uh, teachings of our prophets, uh, the Hebrew prophets, Jesus and Muhammad. Um, so when we're looking at how to uh, inhibit and mitigate violence and save lives, we have to understand all of the elements that go into our memory, our sense of loss, our sense of um, injustice that we live with, and how we can integrate that knowledge in all the disciplines. There's no, uh, there is no excuse for the uh, intellectual avoidance of human needs for dignity, acceptance, respect, and how spiritual hungers, um, the, this, the need for um, something to believe in, uh, is part of our survival. It's, it's literally part of human survival in every, every, uh, every race, every level of development around the world. So that's really uh, our challenge and, and helping um, Bill and the, uh, uh, the croc, this croc, the West Coast Croc Center, uh, in trying to define what the basic tasks for religion and peace building are, and it's been my honor to have an, op you know, an opportunity to talk about it. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here uh, tonight um, at the kickoff for this symposium um, to explore the area of religion and peace building. Uh, I've never had the opportunity to come to the University of San Diego, and I must say, it is truly impressive. 
Uh, and if one can't think uh, peaceful thoughts uh, in this kind of environment, I don't know where one could. Um, so it's really a pleasure um, to actually come and, and for me to learn as well about what's going on here uh, at your institute, your school. Um, I very much appreciate Scott's presentation, his insistence on the critical importance of the further development of an emphasis on peace building, uh, religion and peace building, uh, for practical engagement in the world as well as for academic study. And I am completely uh, um, in agreement with him about the importance of specialization. It seems to me this is absolutely essential. I can't help but address this issue from the perspective of my experience in the last decade or a little over a decade. I uh, am a professor at Arizona State University and a little over 10 years ago, I started to develop a center uh, called the Center for the Study of Religion and Conflict. So that in a certain sense, my perspective on this area of specialization uh, is a kind of a, a mirror image of religion and peace building or the, the kind of evil twin. So that if there's a kind of religion and peace building, well, my work has been focused on religion and conflict. So they go together, and I think Scott rightly notes that, uh, they're, in a sense, inevitably conjoined. But there are ways in which you can emphasize one or the other. And I think it does make a difference. And I do think it's interesting that uh, a number of years ago, Scott, I don't know if he remembers, but we had a symposium, a consultation uh, at my center. And it was titled, um, Religion in Conflict, an Emerging Field? Question mark. So it was a question as to what, in fact, is this area of study? Um, and it's not altogether clear, uh, it seems to me. My center got started, uh, really, if, if I had to indicate a touchstone, it wouldn't so much be Doug Johnston's book, The Missing Dimension of Statecraft, uh, as Samuel Huntington's uh, now infamous uh, essay, um, The Clash of Civilizations. Um, but in that particular piece, he called attention to the growing significance of religious identities and conflicts uh, across civilizations where religion becomes increasingly important in a post-Cold War world. And that this was really critical to pay attention to when there were all sorts of events previous to his essay uh, that were indicating that these were increasing fault lines. Uh, but his work also, in a sense, was a call for scholars to pay attention um, to these issues that, for the most part, uh, there, um, as Scott has mentioned, was not really paid attention to. There were essentially secular blinders in the academy, uh, and I would argue um, continue to be. Um, but 9-11, uh, I think, was the immediate context for the start of my center. The rationale for it was really that uh, we became very much aware as Americans of, uh, in a public sense, of the relationship of religion to conflict. Uh, and for many, religious conflict became, in a sense, the key question of, of our time, of the, the, a great worry about what to how to deal with it. Uh, and my center was essentially focused on trying to understand the myriad factors that go into religion and conflict that it's a problem simply, simply to link them because in doing so, you oftentimes efface the various dimensions that are contributing to the conflict. So it could be disputes over land. It could be that ethnicity is really the key 
contention with religion layered over it. Uh, it could be the way in which states manage religion that pits them against each other and so creates conflict. So there's all sorts of ways in which there are a multiplicity of factors that enter in uh, to creating this um, situation of religion in conflict. And in order to address these areas, it's absolutely essential to bring together scholars who have expertise in these different areas. Someone such as me, trained in religious thought and religious studies, would never really think about the role of the state in relationship to some of these issues. It's just not, in a sense, on my radar screen. Um, I mean, it's become that way more and more when I've been around other scholars. But for the most part, I think disciplines bring their own angles of vision, their own prisms, their own perspectives. And for some of us, we focus on more what we might call ethnographic, cultural, personal, um, subjective dimensions of experience. Other scholars focus on the institutional dimensions. Uh, and so oftentimes these streams don't interrelate much. And I think what becomes very important is to bring them together. So I think specialization is absolutely critical. Um, having spent a lot of time developing this sort of uh, these projects and developing collaborative work and faculty seminars for colleagues, it became quite clear to me, though, that there's a way in which focusing too much on religion and conflict has a way of, in a sense, uh, contributing its own unfortunate uh, emphasis to it. So that even though you're studying it, you're focusing on it and you're highlighting it. And in that sense, it became um, a, so a source of concern to me. And so I, too, have been interested in the question of how do you move past the public representation of religion as the problem? Um, and it seems to me that we still have a, a very powerful sense in public discourse, uh, as well as in academic contexts, uh, that religion, in a sense, is the problem. And how to move past that, I think, is enormously important. But when we come to the question of uh, a field of study, uh, religion and peace building as a field of study, I must say that Scott's paper um, has me almost convinced so that I listen to all the evidence and, well, yes, there are all these ways in which there's these literatures that are being shared. They're important. There's a journal. Uh, and there's, there's, these are very important. Uh, I would not at all um, undermine that. But I do have some reservations, I suppose, about um, how easily we can think about it as an area of, or a, a particular field that's coherent. And I say this in part because if you think about peace as, the, think about the move from um, peace as simply the absence of conflict and negative understanding to peace in a far more robust sense, positive peace, where it essentially includes all that is good, uh, it, it, somehow the transformation of human life in a positive um, dimension. I mean, in this sense of peace is a, a utopian or an eschatological notion of peace, so that it's never fully embodied, of course. It's always um, the search for justice in order to create a more sustainable peace. But in this sense, there are so many areas, and Scott, I think, very helpfully identified um, some of these areas. They, they range from certainly conflict resolution. Uh, they, they include issues of human rights. Um, they include issues of education, 
of economic um, opportunity and advancement. Um, they include climate sustainability. Um, so we could talk about all of the areas of study that, in fact, could be included under the rubric of um, religion and peace building. And it seems to me that um, this broad um, variety of areas, um, at least for me, raises some questions about how to understand it as an area of study. In a sense, if you push the specialization, do all those specializations add up so to speak, to a field of religion and peace building? Or is there, in a certain sense, a tension between too much of the focus on the specialization and peace building as an area of study? So I raise this because, for me, I wonder if the emphasis on religion and peace building isn't a very important and powerful effort to try to counter the public representation of religion. Uh, that we see um, still within the public, um, but we also, as I mentioned, see it within the academy. And I think that's very important uh, work to be doing. Um, but it's also, I think, in some sense, lifting up a way of being religious within religious communities and traditions. It's trying to say that religion is not necessarily a deeply conservative, closed-in sort of uh, identity or action, but it is socially engaged in social transformation of the world. And as many people have said, this is in a certain sense the secularization of religion, the shift to transforming this world uh, as being a primary orientation of the religious life. So I think these are enormously important um, shifts that are going on. Um, but I just, um, and I won't get into the religion and secularism because I think um, Scott mentioned that. Uh, I, and to me, that's one of the most important areas because I do believe that the oppositional notion of religion and the secular is one of our great challenges now. And I think that's partly what sets up this um, sense that religion is the problem. Um, but it seems to me that we have to be careful that we don't, in the process, um, separate religion out as a separate something as though it uh, was also easily demarcated and bounded because there's far more religiosity in the world than the major world religions uh, allow us to see. So in this sense, I think the whole notion and category of religion has to be far more expansive in seeing religiosity as a human orientation um, to the cosmos, let's say. Uh, and, and how we think this through, um, I do think remains um, an enormous challenge, but enormously important. So thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.